Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading, Denver Basic Income Project Midterm Report Shows Significant Benefits for the Unhoused, by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading, The Blair Caldwell African American Research Library is Reopening, Its New Look and Layout Purposefully Center Blackness, by Desiree Matherin. And, Denver's about to get its first 90-degree August day. But first, can we talk about how gorgeous the weather has been? By Obed Manuel. From Westward, I'll be reading, Youth Advisory Council Proposes Solutions for Violence, Mental Health, and Gender-Affirming Practices. By Katie Cheshire. And, Thanks to new law, pregnant women can now avoid incarceration in Colorado. By Benito L. Kelty. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Denver Basic Income Project Midterm Report Shows Significant Benefits for the Unhoused by Robert Davis. Programs that provide no-strings-attached cash payments can significantly decrease stress levels and increase feelings of hopefulness among unhoused folks, according to the Denver Basic Income Project's Midterm Report, which was released on July 19th. The qualitative report captures some of the experiences of program participants in Denver and also sheds light on how they are spending their money and planning for bigger life changes like moving into a new home. It was released one day after Denver Mayor Mike Johnston declared a local state of emergency on homelessness. A quantitative report on the project is expected to be released in October. These preliminary findings confirm our belief that providing basic income to people experiencing homelessness with trust, dignity, and speed will improve lives for the better, said DPIP founder, executive director Mark Donovan. DBIP was founded in 2020 under the premise of using cash payments to address homelessness in Denver, a problem that has been on the top of many minds in the city. The latest Pulse poll from the Colorado Health Foundation found that 79% of Denverites think homelessness is either an extremely serious problem or a very serious problem. Meanwhile, Denver's unhoused population has increased by about 43% from around 3,300 in 2017 to nearly 4,800 in 2022, according to federal snapshot data. The city's unsheltered population has increased by a staggering 141% from 544 to 1,313 over the same period, the data shows. Program participants will receive payments for 12 consecutive months, although there are three different payment tiers. One group will receive $1,000 per month for the entire 12 months time frame. Another group received a one-time payment of $6,500 and then received $500 per month for the rest of the year. The control group is receiving $50 per month. DPIP participant demographics also mirror the demographics of unhoused folks in Denver, the report adds. DPIP performed two small pilots of its program in August of 2021 and June 2022. 
The program officially launched in November 2022 and began making payments shortly thereafter, according to the project's website. To date, DBIP has distributed around $5 million to 846 individuals and families that are participating, according to the report. Funding for the project has come from the Department of Local Affairs, Denver's Department of Housing Stability, and nonprofit organizations like the Colorado Trust, Donovan said. Participants that had bank accounts received their payments through either debit cards or ACH transfers from DBIP, Donovan said. Some participants also received cell phones so they can check their bank balances. Donovan added that DBIP has also provided support to replace lost or stolen cards for participants as well. Outside of the financial benefits, Colorado Coalition for the Homeless Chief Public Policy Officer Kathy Alderman said the report also found that cash assistance improves the overall health and well-being of people experiencing homelessness. CCH is one of the 19 community-based organizations that has helped connect unhoused folks with DBIP. Some participants shared testimonies about how DBIP helped them feel less stressed and improved their outlook on life. Others reported spending their money on groceries, transportation, or mending relationships with friends and family. A small portion of participants also used some of the money to do something nice for themselves, according to the report. It's not enough for someone to simply get a home. You can see the weight of hopelessness lift off these individuals, Alderman said. People have the opportunity to take a step back and say, what's the next best move? Instead of only asking, what do I have to do to survive today? Going forward, DBIP researchers like Daniel Brisson at Denver University's Center for Housing and Homelessness Studies said they are paying attention to the potential benefit cliff that some participants may face when the program ends later this year. A benefit cliff refers refers to a sudden or unexpected decrease in income from benefits like DPIP or public programs like Social Security or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. DBIP could collect data about potential benefit cliffs during exit interviews with program participants, Brisson said, but that data is not part of the program's original framework. We'd like to sustain this type of programming for as long as possible so we can learn what happens when people don't face that benefit cliff, Donovan said. This is something that has never been done before, and that's why this kind of research is so valuable. The next two articles are from Denverite. The Blair Caldwell African American Research Library is reopening. Its new look and layout purposefully center blackness by Desiree Matherin. Intentionality, community mindfulness, and blackness were the three major components Jamika Lewis, branch manager of the Blair Caldwell African American Research Library, and her team considered during the building's renovation. Beyond the physical renovations like HVAC repair, adding accessibility components, and design overhauling, the overall goal was to make the space intentionally black history-centered with the surrounding community in mind. From the colors to the historical photos on bookshelves to the books on display, the new Blair Caldwell space is steeped in black culture, and folks can see it for themselves at a ground reopening planned for this Saturday. Lewis said the programming starts at 10 a.m. at the Five Points Branch located at 2401 Welton Street. Once you were in this space, there was nothing that said this is a black library, said Lewis. 
When I first met with the architect, I said this renovation has to represent blackness with intention, and that's what we really wanted to accomplish. Blair Caldwell opened in 2003 and is a nationally recognized public library that focuses on collecting and preserving African American history and culture. It's one of five research libraries attached to the public library system in the U.S. that focuses on black history through collection archives. But since its opening, the building had not received any type of physical or design update. In 2017, voters passed the Elevate Denver bond that allocated about $2.8 million toward renovating the space. Recently, voters also passed Referred Question 2I, which slightly increased property taxes to add additional money to the Denver Public Library Fund. With the 2I ordinance, Lewis said staffing has increased and new staff members are receiving higher pay. Pay raises for existing staff are on the way, she added. Through that funding, the branch will also have extended hours. Some of that funding was also used toward the renovation. Lewis said the whole first floor was transformed into an open space with added study rooms, a new teen space, lowered shelves, and computer desks that are height adjustable. The old layout had the circulation desk sitting smack dab at the front entrance, and Lewis said it was like a fortress. It felt intimidating and not inviting. Now the desk is off to the side where folks can see the librarians if they need help. A seating area with homey vibes that the librarians call the living room now sits where the old circulation desk used to be. Touches of black culture are seen in the space's color scheme as well as the nearest book choices. Lewis said that the colors throughout the space are a nod to the pan-African flag of red, green, and black. The nearby bookshelf is a curated shelf of black history books. Everything that is in our research room upstairs is black history and culture stuff, but it does not circulate, Lewis said. You can't check out any of those black history books upstairs. I said we are not meeting an information need by having our black history books behind our doors. So Lewis went through the collection of about 1,400 books and picked 600 to bring downstairs to add to the circulation shelves. This collection mirrors the collection upstairs. Customers can actually come in and sit and browse and check these books out, Lewis said. That's just one way, Lewis said, that the branch is focusing on black history and black authors. Along the walls and on the end caps of every shelf are historical pictures of black people from Five Points, Denver, and Colorado. There's a young photo of Charles Burrell, the first black musician to join the Colorado Symphony with his signature cigar and bass. There's also photos of school kids and black cowboys. Display cases spread throughout the first floor will at some point be filled with 3D archival pieces, but for now they include collected memorabilia from staff members. Lewis collects racist memorabilia such as mammy figures. It's an act of resistance, absolutely, because I feel like certain people shouldn't have that, Lewis said. In the new teen space, there's a room with a large TV and seating along with a collection of black YA novelists, including books such as The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas and Everybody Looking by Candace Lowe. The room will have gaming systems and charging stations for interested teen library goers. Lewis said the room will also be a creative space where teens can draw on the windows with glass markers, and there will be a space for black teen artists to display their work. 
Outside the room is another seating area next to the YA shelves that again displays more black novelists' work. It's very intentional and very on purpose because a lot of these black titles tend to not circulate as much as other ones, and we wanted this to be a nod to the African-American collection, Lewis said. We're the only branch in DPL that has a specific focus, and that gives me some leverage to say that this is our mission and we should be promoting these things. We look at data. We see that the black featured books and black focused material don't circulate like others do. Intentionally displaying black authors is the norm around the library, especially in the children's section that is next door to the teen room. Starting in September, Lewis said the branch will host weekly story times with librarians and guest speakers. All the books read there will feature black characters. We do have this specialization, but we are still in a system. Any of system-wide program initiatives, we still do all of those. They're just going to be black, Lewis said. Next to the children's section is an art piece from Denver artist Sam McNeil with Superior Ironworks Plus. The piece is a table in the shape of the five points intersection, and the top of the table includes children's book featuring black characters. The first floor wasn't the only space to get an update. The second and third floors received new carpeting. The second floor historical archive featuring the community cases also got a facelift with the help of Dexter Nelson II, the museum and archives supervisor with the branch. The cases were reorganized to better show off the contents. Lewis and Nelson said the updated space can be curated by locals and they encourage folks to come to the museum and drop off anything they believe is a historical piece of Five Points, Denver, or Colorado history. We're really big on community. We can tell you all about Leroy Smith or Charles Burrell, but it's way better to have them tell you, Nelson said. We really want to prioritize oral histories. We have these folks that have this amazing history and this amazing connection to these national stories that you might not know. These people are here in Denver, here in Colorado, and they're black folks. Lewis said community is the driving force behind many of the changes in programming at Blair, and that won't change, even as the historically black Five Points neighborhood experiences a change in racial demographics. Blair Caldwell was founded purposefully in a black community, but with rising rent and gentrification, the neighborhood landscape has changed with shuttered businesses and fewer black residents. But that won't deter the Blair Caldwell staff from making the branch a focal point of blackness. If you can name for me five other DPL locations where you can get black programming, intentional black programming, and highlighting the accomplishments of black people throughout the year, then we'll change, Lewis said. When the Webbs founded this place, they founded it with the intention of this always being a black cultural center, a place where black belonging and black community can happen. That's not changing, no matter who lives across the street, no matter who lives next door. Folks can stop by and experience that black culture, history, and more on Saturday at the reopening celebration in commemoration of the branch's 20th anniversary. Also, check out the new spaces. Community leaders Stuart Tucker Lundy, Adrian Miller, and Quan Atlas will host a story time. There will be some performances from jazz artists, spoken word poets, and musician Kid Astronaut. Lewis said Blair is entering a new era. She and Nelson agreed that the future of Blair Caldwell will include more black communities such as the LGBTQ community, various artists, and podcasters. 
Any black creative who would like to have their work displayed can reach out, reach out to the branch, Lewis and Nelson said. The goal is to grow and continually intentionally provide a space for blackness and a space to learn about blackness. Blair is really a lighthouse, Nelson said. Lewis added, everyone is welcome. We want everyone to come in and get this history. We want everyone to come in and get this information because black history, learning about it, is not just for black people. Anyone can come in here and see themselves represented, whether it's on the walls or whether it's amongst my staff. Denver's about to get its first 90-degree August day. But first, can we talk about how gorgeous the weather has been? By Obed Manuel. Can we take a second or two to shout out just how nice it's been outside since the start of August? The cool breeze flowing in through my window has been a highlight of my week, given that I've been sick the past two days after my kid shared his cold with me. The cooler weather has given our brand new AC unit a break. It's only run a few times this week. But today's forecast from the National Weather Service shows it will be the first day in August that will reach 90 degrees in Denver, and we could hit that mark again Friday and Saturday. It's been a relatively cool start to August compared to at least the last two years. By this point in August last year, we'd already hit the 90-degree mark seven times and triple digits once, according to NWS historical data. And the temperature reached 90 degrees four times in August 2021 in the same number of days. Sure, the sun has been its usual very hot and aggressive self. It is summer after all. But that's nothing a good tree, we love a good tree, or hat can't help you deal with. The mornings have felt cold, to me anyway. This was especially true on Sunday when I went to the final Viva Streets Denver on Broadway and met with a few of you at our table. At times, I longed for a hoodie. Anyway, this summer, with its rainiest June since the 1880s, has been my favorite since I made the move here from Texas, where a lot of my family and friends have been dealing with triple-digit highs almost all summer long. Sadly, there is a hammer drop coming to all of this. Denver's summers are probably just going to get hotter as the West gets hotter and drier because of climate change, and that's just something those of us who live here will likely have to just get used to. For now, let's enjoy the next few days. After Saturday, max temps will dip back into the 80s until next Wednesday, according to the current NWS forecast. So, if you have kiddos in Denver Public Schools, be sure to make that most of the nice days left before they start school, and maybe take them somewhere nice. The following articles are from Westward. Youth Advisory Council Proposes Solutions for Violence, Mental Health, and Gender-Affirming Practices by Katie Cheshire. Young Coloradans are often affected by policies passed by the state legislature while not being old enough to have a say in such legislation. But what if the kids were in charge? The Colorado Youth Advisory Council, established by lawmakers in 2008, is answering that query this year with a series of policy solutions put forth by high school students in the areas of youth violence, mental health, racial equality in education, and gender-affirming practices in schools. The greatest impact it's had on me is that I'm not relying on other people to do the work, says Lee Schmidt, an alum of the program. I'm not trying to persuade legislators to do the work. I am actually the one doing it myself. Members of the Youth Advisory Council, high school students ages 14 to 19, 
serve two-year terms, during which they identify problems and research solutions that could turn into actual state legislation. In the 2021 legislative sessions, for example, four different COYAC proposals were pushed through and made into law. Schmidt, who is heading to George Washington University after graduating from Lakewood High School, completed her two-year term in June, but she's continuing to testify in this session's committee owing to her passion for the subject matter. The Colorado Youth Advisory Council in Interim Committee, which reviews the work of the Youth Advisory Council and recommends legislation, comprises three elected Democrats and two Republicans from the legislature, in addition to the seven youths selected for the program from the 40 COYAC members. I've learned a ton about the state government, and it's helped me figure out what I want to do going forward, Schmidt says. She plans to study international relations with a minor in Spanish and eventually run for local office. The former council member will definitely have the experience if she does. Students are questioned with vigor by the members of the advisory committee in the legislature and don't get a free pass when it comes to their ideas. It's the same work that the legislators do themselves, Schmidt explains. The adults in the legislature are not in schools every day, so they just don't have the same perspective that we do. Here's an overview of each 2023 student proposal. Youth, Mental Health, and Licensed Psychologists Every single person knows someone who struggles with mental health, testified COYAC participant Sid Naredi at an August 9th committee meeting. Solutions simply have not worked to the degree that they should, which is why we need to try something new. Naredi cited Healthy Kids Colorado data from 2021, in which 40% of kids surveyed faced depression and 17% considered suicide. Across Colorado, 124 of the state's 188 school districts do not have licensed school psychologists, he continued. In the schools that do, 31 of them do not meet the National Association of School Psychologists' recommended ratio of one psychologist to every 500 students. With these high ratios, students are unable to build strong relationships with the psychologists that they're seeing, and this ends up worsening patient outcomes overall, Naredi concluded. After finding that only a quarter of those who graduated from licensed school psychology programs in Colorado ended up remaining in the state after one year, the COYAC crew proposed student loan relief for practicing school psychologists who work for three years in districts that previously did not have one. Colorado is an expensive place to live, and oftentimes the wages for school psychologists in these underserved areas are not necessarily up to par with what they may find in other states, Naredi said. How to Decrease School Shootings COYAC member Kate Priest shared with that the students found several issues related to school shooting prevention. First off, school resource officers are under-researched. According to a study by Brown University, school resource officers, while they do prevent violence in schools, are not shown to prevent gun violence in schools, Priest said. They are shown to increase arrests, expulsions, and long-term absences, especially for minorities and students of color. Next, the students observed issues with Safe to Tell, the state's anonymous reporting method established after the Columbine shootings. Its annual report is not peer-reviewed, and Priest noted that there is a stigma around those who use Safe to Tell being considered snitches. 
The students also found that threat assessment in the schools is inconsistent across the state. Currently, there is no required assessment, and the 2015 Claire Davis School Safety Act, established after its namesake teen was murdered at school, causes schools to be hesitant to label students as threats, Priest said. The act says that schools are liable for any gun violence from students that they're currently assessing like that, she continued. This makes schools more eager to expel students rather than support them through threat assessment or other mental health support. To make matters worse, there are also not enough counselors to provide that support, as Naredi showed. Therefore, COYAC is proposing the creation of a task force to research counselors in schools, threat assessment training, and the efficacy of programs like SROs and Safe to Tell. The students also want to require school districts to post information about safe storage of guns on their websites annually in order to make the state's safe storage gun laws more visible to parents. Teaching Asian American History in Schools Another proposal seeks to improve how Asian American history is taught in schools, including instructing students on modern-day racism. As a half-Japanese student whose grandmother was born at Amachi, which was the Japanese internment camp in southern Colorado, this issue is especially important to me, testified Cameron Sample. Although I've grown up learning about her experiences from family members, I've scarcely ever learned about the Japanese internment camps in school. Sample cited a 2019 state law that sends funding to public schools to teach history, culture, and social contributions of American Indians, Latinos, African Americans, and Asian Americans, among other groups. But the law, Sample said, is too broad to be effective when it comes to Asian American history. Our committee wants to continue its efforts by creating an ethnic study commission and expand on the bill, she proposed. The state can't compel schools to teach certain curriculum, but it can track it, and that is what the students are asking for. They also suggest that the state invest in a resource bank that teachers can use to help with lesson planning on Asian American history. Resource Assistance in Public Schools COYAC Representative Reese Van Dyke put forth a proposal that would create resource banks in schools that include hygiene items such as menstrual products, hairbrushes, deodorant, and other items that can be hard for low-income families to afford. The students suggested a state grant program that allots money based on the number of students at each school who qualify for free and reduced lunch. Senator Janice Marchman, a member of the Youth Advisory Council Committee, asked why the menstrual hygiene products in school programs set up by the legislature in 2020 wasn't sufficient. This bill provided menstrual products within school bathrooms to be used at school, Van Dyke responded. The current proposal would allow students to shop at the hygiene resource bank and take the items home. Non-legal name changes in schools and gender-affirming care. The last two proposals focused on helping students who are transgender or otherwise outside the gender binary. Students Megan Taylor and Schmidt both testified about experiences they've had worrying that their transgender friends would take their lives because of a lack of acceptance and the inability to access medical care. When I was 15, I found myself reaching out for gender-affirming care, testified Mason Evans, another COYAC participant. I was struggling to get out of bed, 
to go to school, to do my work, to live every day, because I lived in a world that did not see me for me. A few weeks after reaching out for care, I received a phone call from my doctor, and I heard his disappointed voice on the other end of the line telling me that he could not help me. Evans was finally able to access gender-affirming care, which is supportive medical care provided to transgender and gender nonconforming individuals when he turned 18. He wants others in Colorado to be able to get the care they need as well. The legislative solution would create a grant program to train family planning clinics and health care centers in gender-affirming care, particularly in rural areas. The students also proposed a task force to study gender-affirming care in Colorado in order to find other ways to eliminate barriers to care. I chose to dedicate my second year in COYAC to making gender-affirming care more accessible because I don't want anyone to have to lay awake at night worrying that they won't see their trans friends the next day, Schmidt said at the August 9th hearing. The other proposal to help transgender students is one that would allow non-legal name changes in schools for students 12 and older. Non-legal name changes simply recognize a preferred name that someone has that is different from their legal name. COYAC students want to create documents that transgender students can use to formally ask their schools to recognize their preferred names. If students want that name to be used on external documents, they should get parent signatures. But if they want it only to be used internally, like during classroom roll call or in the hallways, they do not have to get signatures under this proposal. State Representative Stephanie Vigil, who chairs the interim committee, asked if there would be a route for schools to help students and parents who disagree about their non-legal name change reconcile their differences. Taylor, who spoke with several school districts to develop the proposal, said they indicated that this would be a good pathway for kids and their parents to connect if they do not have the same consensus for transgender and gender-diverse issues. The legislation would also appoint an advisory committee or task force to examine policies related to non-legal name changes and adaptations to their implementation. According to the Minnesota Department of Health, transgender youth that live in environments where their chosen name and pronouns are respected attempt suicide at half the rate of transgender individuals whose chosen names and pronouns are not respected, Taylor said. Creating a consensus for schools to follow to help students will directly lead to lower rates of suicide. The students will meet with legislators two more times this year, on August 17th and October 25th. The committee can send at least six ideas for bill drafting and refer three for introduction at the legislature. Lawmakers can choose to sponsor additional bills themselves. We are the next generation of people, Schmidt says. Youth are a huge subset of the population. We deserve to have our voices heard in the legislature. Thanks to new law, pregnant women can now avoid incarceration in Colorado. By Benito El Kelty. More than five years have passed since the world watched, aghast, at the video of Diana Sanchez giving birth alone in a Denver County jail cell in July of 2018. The incident was covered by countless media outlets after Sanchez's lawyer, Mary Newman, released footage of her client's horrifying ordeal in order to force Denver officials to take responsibility. 
Newman scored many victories against the Denver Sheriff Department and Denver Health after that, including a $500,000 settlement for Sanchez in 2020. But one of the most lasting impacts is a Colorado law that went into effect on Monday, August 7th. HB 23-1187 urges courts to offer bonds or other sentences besides jail time for pregnant women. It was passed by the Colorado legislature in April with the help of testimony from Newman, who says that if the bill had become law earlier, Sanchez might have avoided her traumatic experience. It could have saved Diana and her baby from the horrible experience that they had to endure, Newman says. She is the exact type of person who should not have been put in jail. Sanchez was eight months pregnant when she was jailed for violating the terms of her probation, which related to charges of identity theft for a check she cashed in her sister's name. After being incarcerated for several weeks, she went into labor a few days before her due date. Instead of ensuring that Ms. Sanchez was able to give birth in a safe and sanitary medical setting, Denver health nurses and Denver sheriff deputies callously made her labor alone for hours because it was inconvenient to take her to the hospital during the jail's booking process, according to court documents. Newman released the video of Sanchez's incident the next year in response to the Denver Sheriff Department saying that it did nothing wrong and Denver Health, which is responsible for monitoring pregnant inmates, not responding at all. Unfortunately, over the course of my career, Diana is not the only person I've represented who had a terrible experience because she was pregnant while incarcerated, Newman says. Her first case involved Pam Clifton, who was incarcerated and went into labor in a Colorado Department of Corrections facility. She was in labor for two days before prison staff took her to a hospital. The guard there decided they couldn't bother contacting the medical professional, even though Clifton was a woman at full term and in labor, Newman recalls. She was in labor for hours and hours over the course of which she quit feeling any fetal movement, and it turned out her baby had died. Clifton's baby had been strangled by its umbilical cord because of a complication known as neutral cord, something Newman says she's gone through herself. Since the situation arises in nearly a third of all births, hospitals are equipped to handle it, but correctional facilities are not. When I had my own child, if I had not been in a hospital, the same thing would have happened, Newman says. The difference is that I was in a position where I was free to go to the hospital. Pam was at the mercy of these incredibly inhumane guards who couldn't even be bothered to contact a medical professional for a woman who was in labor. Instead, guards told Clifton to go back to her prison unit because it had plenty of women there who knew how to birth babies, Newman says. I remember the phrase because it was so shocking. If she had been taken to the hospital like she should have been, her baby could have been saved. With the new law, pregnant women being charged criminally will have a rebuttal presumption against detention, which means that courts will need to prove that there's a risk to public safety if the pregnant woman is not jailed. Otherwise, she can avoid incarceration and instead receive an alternative sentence, such as a diversion program, a deferred sentence, or a stay of execution that would put carrying out a court sentence on hold. In order to be eligible for such consideration, a woman will need to prove her pregnancy during each step of the criminal proceedings. Those who are already incarcerated in a county jail or correctional facility can request a pregnancy test, 
which has to be provided within 24 hours. Pregnant people should not be incarcerated, Newman concludes. That is my fundamental belief. I think this is a good start, and there's a lot more that can still be done. Cops catch sexual trail predator suspect using drones, dogs, and unmarked police units by Chris Perez. At around 6.15 p.m. on Tuesday, August 8th, the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office received the 911 call that investigators had been waiting for. The Jeffco trail pervert, responsible for a series of frightening masturbation and groping attacks on female hikers in Evergreen and Conifer, had struck again. We had a very solid plan in place if it should happen again, says GCSO spokesperson Jackie Kelly. Late that afternoon, the suspected sexual predator, identified as Glenn Braden, a 20-year-old from Evergreen, had set upon two female hikers walking alone at Stapleton Park near Beaverbrook Trail. In separate episodes, he reportedly exposed himself and then attempted to grab one of the women before fleeing. He's accused of fondling himself in front of one hiker as well. The incidents happened within a couple of minutes of each other, according to the JCSO. When we received the 911 call, we deployed a lot of resources to that area, Kelly tells Westward. We had a combination of patrol units, unmarked cars, marked cars, ununiformed personnel, uniformed personnel, a couple of our special units. We had drones in the air. We had canines. We just threw the manpower that we had available to us that seemed to try and lock down a perimeter and catch the suspect, and we did. It took roughly two and a half hours of intense searching to find and arrest Braden. He was bedded down within our perimeter, Kelly says. We came across him, and a short foot chase ensued, but he was eventually taken into custody, and then we brought him back to the sheriff's office for questioning and to be booked for his charges. Authorities couldn't say whether Braden had talked to detectives about his motives, but a law enforcement source was able to confirm that he hadn't lawyered up as of midday August 9th. Braden is accused of being the culprit in at least six other incidents in which female hikers were accosted by a naked man who fondled himself in front of them and sometimes groped his victims. According to the JCSO, authorities received the initial report on April 3rd when a man targeted a woman walking solo along a trail in Flying J Ranch Park in Conifer. The naked suspect allegedly grabbed the hiker's buttocks. Two months later, on June 13th, the same man confronted a female victim at Alderfer Three Sisters Park in Evergreen and began masturbating, says the sheriff's office. On July 18th, he approached three separate women at Flying J Ranch Park in a single day, fondling two of them, according to JCSO officials. He also masturbated and engaged in sexual conversation. On July 24th, the suspect allegedly confronted a female hiker, pleasuring himself before proceeding to grab her in an attempt to rip off her clothing. After each incident, he would run off into the woods, avoiding capture, according to police, but not Tuesday. The plan that we had in place worked very well, Kelly says. It's likely a plan that we would use in the future, depending on the kind of incident that we're dealing with. Braden has been booked on three counts of unlawful sexual contact and five counts of indecent exposure, with an advisement hearing scheduled for him today, August 10th. He did not post bond. 
The trail system in Jefferson County is a safer place to be because this guy is in custody, Kelly says, adding that the sheriff's office was worried that the man was getting more brazen and more aggressive in his attacks. Anything we can do to catch a suspect who is trying to victimize women who are alone on trails is a good day. Driving instructor crashes into Lakewood Driving School, cited for careless driving, by Chris Perez. Oh, the irony. A man training to be a driving instructor, who was on his second day, was issued a careless driving ticket on Tuesday, August 8th, after he crashed into the Lakewood school where he works, according to police. The man, who was not identified by cops, had been attempting to park his Hyundai Tucson SUV in front of the community driving school at 2099 Wadsworth Boulevard when he accidentally drove into the office, says John Romero, public information officer for the Lakewood Police Department. No injuries were reported and no arrests made, Romero tells Westward. He was cited for careless driving. Surveillance footage captured by a camera at another business in the shopping center where the driving school is located, high roller smoke and vape, shows the instructor slowly pulling into the parking lot and toward a spot in front of the driving school before attempting to pull in and accidentally hitting the gas. When you look at our video, it looks like he had just accidentally hit the gas instead of the brakes, said Anastasia Walfred, co-owner of High Roller Smoke. Of course, with it being the driving school, all of us in the shopping center are talking about it and joking about it. The memes have been endless. According to Steve Roman, owner of the community driving school, which is a third-party tester that administers in-car driving exams, as the state is no longer providing them, per its website, the man involved in the crash was a brand new employee who was on his second day of work. He has not yet made it through an in-car instructor training. He hasn't gone through our in-house certification, Roman says. He was there today to shadow a classroom. He hadn't even started the training process for in-car instructor. He's brand new. He was just starting the classroom portion of being an instructor. The employee was in his own personal vehicle and not a company car. His employment status is being evaluated by the driving school, and it doesn't look good. We look for highly qualified people to teach our students, and this isn't in line with what we're looking for, Roman tells Westward. His status is being weighed. He adds, At Community Driving School, the safety of our instructors and students is the most important thing to us, and we are always making decisions based on that. Described as one of Denver's premier driving schools, Community Driving School currently has four locations in Golden, Lakewood, Westminster, and Littleton. The Lakewood facility has been open since 2016 and has never experienced anything like this, according to Roman, nor has the company. As a school, we've been in business a lot longer than that, and we've never had anything like a crash happen, he says. Others in the shopping center, however, Say it was just another crazy day near Colfax Avenue. There's always something, Walfred says, of what she sees outside High Roller Smoke week in and week out. Just a few months ago, maybe a year now, someone accidentally crashed into the liquor store in the same complex, she notes. So, yeah, this shopping center is pretty funny. Frankie Lee talks coming out and leaving the Mormon church in award-winning one-man show by Tony Tresca. As of this year, I've been out of the Mormon church and out of the closet for seven years, 
says Frankie Lee, creator and star of the one-man show, FOMO, formerly Mormon. It took me a long time to get to a place where I could reconcile those emotions. I love stand-up and sketch comedy. Those mediums have been my home for years. But I've been itching to tell an impactful story like this, he continues. It has been fun to not only share my story, which a surprising number of people have found relatable, but also to be able to laugh at the religious trauma that has been weighing me down for years. On Saturday, August 12th, at Rise Comedy, Lee will perform an encore of his best solo performance in comedy winning act from the 2023 Denver Fringe Festival. FOMO, former Mormon, is a one-man show written, performed, and produced by Lee, along with director Rebecca Golson and assistant director, script supervisor Val Fasilis. It shares the story of a young man discovering his queer identity while signing his life away to the Mormon church. Despite the suffering and opposition he encountered, Lee candidly and amusingly reflects on the chance he took to leave Mormonism and live as a gay man. The play began to come together in 2019, when I was in a playwriting class at DCPA right after starting therapy, Lee recalls. I was there because my therapist said, I want you to go take a playwriting class because you need to do something for yourself. So I did. And it was in that class that I started writing the early pages of FOMO. It was originally a two-act play, and I spent two to three years working on it and trying to figure out what made sense and what worked well, but nothing really clicked. That was until about a year ago, when Lee found himself in a conversation with Golson about performances that inspired them. I mentioned that Phoebe Waller-Bridge is a huge inspiration of mine, and it hit me. FOMO was a solo show, Lee says. Before I could tell the stories of other people that had impacted me, I had to tell my own story. And so I started writing FOMO, the one-person show in the fall of that year. It kind of just sat on my laptop and stared at me for months until Christy Bouchelle and I were talking in February about solo shows. She encouraged me to submit to the Denver Fringe. And I was like, that's terrifying. It's not even done. She's like, well, if you get in, there's your deadline. And I'm like, okay, challenge accepted. After that, I ended up finishing the first full draft of FOMO at the end of February this year. The play was accepted into the 2023 Denver Fringe Festival, which meant that Lee had to get it up and running by June. Even though he was initially a little nervous about being so vulnerable on stage, he found the show's production process to be a remarkably liberating experience. I could finally laugh at all these things that I was certainly not laughing about back then, Lee says. I make a joke in the show about having an affair with a guy in the Mormon church who I found on Grindr. It was high stakes and serious back then, and even as I say it out loud now, I have to admit the premise is hilarious. It's hard because at that time, I was 18 years old and didn't know any better. I was trying to survive. Now that I've healed from that experience, I'm thriving and love sharing my experience in FOMO. However, that week leading up to the Denver Fringe Festival was terrifying, he continues. I had several moments where I was like, Oh no, what am I doing? I'm telling one of the most fundamental stories of who Frankie is as a person. I was less concerned with how people were going to respond. Having done comedy for nine years now, I'm used to various audience responses. But when it came to FOMO, 
I had to open up about everything in my personal life. I had to come to terms with the fact that as someone who has endured and survived religious trauma, there were times along the way when I was the bad guy. I think what scared me was not knowing how my friends and family were going to respond. Following his first performance, he felt an enormous weight leave his shoulders. Not even just from a production standpoint, but from a human standpoint, Lee says, I finally get to tell the world about this experience that shaped me. The audience response was incredible. I had several sold-out shows, and I remember going back to the green room with tears of joy after the first performance because I had finally gotten to do it. I'm still blown away that we won the award for Best Solo Performance in Comedy, and I definitely have planned to apply to the Denver Fringe Festival again. I've been putting the word out to people in the comedy community to submit new projects to Fringe because people are craving new content. Lee says that the show he will be performing at Rise Comedy is essentially the same one that made its debut at the Denver Fringe Festival back in June. He hopes to take the show to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and other venues around the world, but Saturday, August 12th, will be the last chance for local audiences to see it for a while. I've made some tweaks here and there, but the piece is pretty much similar to our recent shows, Lee says. We are working out more tour details, which I hope to share soon, but for now, I'm just grateful to the Denver Fringe for giving me the opportunity to premiere FOMO there and to Rise Comedy for assisting me in keeping the project alive. FOMO is still 50 minutes long, with the same materials and trajectory. What I'm bringing to it now is a newfound sense of confidence in the piece. FOMO, former Mormon, 9 p.m. Saturday, August 12th, Rise Comedy, 1260 22nd Street, Denver. Tickets are $14 to $17. Find out more information at risecomedy.com. Lumonics Immersed takes its light sculpture experience to Boulder by Tony Tresca. Entering a performance at Lumonics Light and Sound Gallery is like stepping through a looking glass and into a sci-fi wonderland. The gallery's Lumonics Immersed installation which won a 2023 Best of Denver Award for Best Long-Running Immersive Experience, was originally created by the late Dorothy and Mel Tanner, pioneering light artists whose singular style fuses elements of light, music, and sculpture to produce captivating and engrossing experiences for the audience. After Dorothy passed in 2020, we thought it would be great to continue the show as a tribute to our founders and honor their miraculous sculptures, says Barry Raphael, Lumonics archivist and publicist. Over the years, a lot of the pieces have been reworked, but it's cool that the Tanner's Lumonics have been able to find new life. They still pop, and the spectacle of pieces draw you in. Their twinkling nature is just deeply captivating. Initially, we had just planned to continue hosting events and holding exhibitions, like we had done at Meow Wolf and other local art galleries. But to my delight, Lumonics has developed further. For the first time in the installation's history, it will tour to Boulder as part of the gallery's effort to broaden its reach and connect with new audiences. On Friday, August 11th and Saturday, August 12th, the Lumonics team will take over the Dairy Arts Center's Carson Theater to host three performances of Lumonics Immersed. Before the special presentation in Boulder, a brief documentary about the background, sources, of inspiration and creative process of Lumonics will be screened. Created by Lumonics creative director Mark Billard, 
The 10-minute video offers a deeper understanding of the artist's vision and their journey in developing their light sculptures, or lumonics. After the video, Lumonics Immersed will present these, those sculptures, which light up to music and video effects controlled by Billard. The immersive experience, which happens at the Denver Gallery on Saturdays at 8 p.m., is meant to be a multi-sensory excursion into the layers of consciousness. Immersive experiences have become very popular in recent years, but Dorothy and Mel have been taking people on these types of journeys since the 60s, Raphael notes. Over the years, we've done a lot of cool things, but we've never really done anything like this tour to Boulder before. We've had museum exhibits with projections going, but it wasn't an actual performance where we activated the light sculptures using lighting effects, sound, and projections. Transporting the pieces from the studio to Boulder will be a bit tricky, but it's fun that we're still finding new ways to challenge ourselves. Although the studio has never toured its show, the group has had experience transporting its light sculptures across the nation. Since the Tanners began to combine light and sculpture around 1966, Lumonics has had studio spaces in Miami, where the Tanners began their performances in 1969 in their converted studio space, which they called the Lumonics Night Light and Sound Theater, San Diego, Bangor, Maine, Boston, Fort Lauderdale, and Denver, where it currently is based at 800 East 73rd Avenue. When Mel passed away in 1993, Dorothy and the Lumonics team continued to host immersive performances in his honor. However, when the collective moved to Denver in 2008, there was initially some hesitation about continuing the shows. Dorothy and Mark were reluctant to continue the show when we first opened this venue because it was much smaller than we were used to, Raphael explains. They felt that it was not possible to provide the same level of experience for people that we were used to providing. We did not have the mezzanine or the large screen that we were used to, so we focused on other things for a while. The Lumonics Light and Sound Gallery was primarily supported by concerts and gallery tours, as well as placement of the sculptures and art exhibits around town and teaching students about the fundamentals of light sculpture at the Lumonics School of Light Art, which opened in 2018, the same year Dorothy received the Denver Mayor's Award for Innovation in the Arts. The remaining Lumonics team members, Raphael Billard and Barbara Billard, the gallery's technical assistant, started looking for ways to carry on the performances in Dorothy's honor after she passed away in July 2020 at age 97. Lumonics Immersed at the Dairy Arts Center is the perfect introduction to the Tanner's unique art form in one of Boulder's largest multidisciplinary arts centers. Lumonics Immersed, 8 p.m. Friday, August 11th, 1 p.m. and 8 p.m. Saturday, August 12th, Carson Theater, 2590 Walnut Street, Boulder. Tickets are $17 to $20. Find more information at lumonics.net. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.